Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert de Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're talking to Patrick Worms. He's the president of the European Agroforestry Federation and he was a recent participant in our workshop on the UN Food System Summit about regenerative agriculture. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you're welcome, Robert. I'm looking forward to this. I want to begin by giving our listeners a brief overview of, of what agroforestry is. Can you give a brief definition, perhaps an example of, of its use on a current farm? Absolutely. Agroforestry merely means the integration of perennial plants like trees or even bamboo in a farming system whose main product is a crop plant or a livestock unit. Um, we all know agroforestry systems, even if we don't know the word. For example, think of the Deheza in Spain, the savanna type landscapes with cork oaks on them, where the key products are pigs, cattle, um, sheep, and of course the cork oak that uh, stops our wine bottles in the evening. Um, agroforestry can take all sorts of different forms. You can have severe rows of straight trees in arable systems so that your machinery can get through. You can have these more complex savanna type systems that I've described. You can have grazed orchards. You can have forest grazing. You can have woodlots. You can have hedges. You can have windbreaks. All of those are the integration of trees into agricultural landscapes. And all of those fall under the broad heading of agroforestry. So is there a sort of lower bound? How many trees should I have in my field to be able to say I am an agroforestry practitioner? If you're talking to your mates, it's as many trees as you like. If you're talking to the regulators, the answer has to be more precise, of course. And that's been a foundational barrier to agroforestry for many years. For a long time, European regulations uh, put an upper bound to the trees you could put in arable systems. And that upper bound was fixed at 100. For a while, it was unclear whether that was 100 trees at the seedling stage or 100 trees at the sapling stage or 100,000 year old oaks. And of course, that makes an enormous difference to the land underneath. So these rules and regulations have been evolving over time to give farmers the confidence that as they add trees to their systems, they are not at risk of losing their subsidy payments under the existing um, common agricultural policy regulations. So what, what is the benefit? Why, if I'm a farmer, let's say where you are in, in Belgium, why should I add more trees to my field? Um, as uh, you have no doubt noticed, we, we had some massive floods in Germany and Belgium at the moment, and you might have noticed that the water was brown. That water came from farmland. Um, these massive rains eroded literally millions of tons of uh, uh, fertile soil and deposited them in these houses, on those streets, uh, on these bridges and, and everywhere else the damage happened, with most of it going down the Rhine and the Maas and into the North Sea. 
So the first order of business is erosion control because the water that came down from the forests was not brown. The water that came down from the forest was clear. Um, by adding trees to your systems, you control erosion and not just water erosion in a storm, but also the simple rain erosion that you get in everyday practice or the wind erosion that you get when you've just tilled your soil, you've prepared the seed bed, you've got a bit of a, a week of dry weather coming up and there's a bit of a wind and we all know how much wind can, how much damage wind can do to the soil. That's one example. Um, another example is nutrition management. Uh, tree roots go much deeper than crop roots. They pull up nutrients from deep in the soil, which they redistribute to the soil surface through the fall of their re leaf and uh, twig litter. Um, they also provide environmental service because of the same phenomenon. If you're fertilizing your soil, we all know that a lot of the fertilizer does not go into the crop, but risks going uh, into deeper soil horizons and from there into the water table and thus into the rivers, the tree roots, which are under the crop roots, will absorb a significant proportion of that excess nitrogen for their own growth. So you've got better management of resources. You've also got better management of water resources. Uh, when you have a drought, the um, partial shade the trees provide uh, keep moisture in your fields for a longer period of time. When you have a rainfall, when you have uh, a storm, these trees act like giant rain catching devices. The water runs along the branches and the trunks and the roots and is stored in the soil rather than running off into the rivers. And then on top of these, and, and, and sorry, I could go on, pest control. Uh, you know, if, if you have uh, 100 hectares of wheat, it's like an open bar to any pest. So the way that we traditionally deal with that is by spraying. Um, to make sure that if the pest turns up, it doesn't stand a chance. If you have trees, the trees will host a variety of pest predators. Uh, you can think of birds, you can think of bats, but also of other insects, um, uh, amphibians and reptiles that love to eat on your pests. Uh, so you have pest control. It diminishes. It may not completely eliminate your need for pesticides, but it will reduce the amount of money you need to spend on pesticides. So your input costs are going down. You need less fertilizer, you need fewer pesticides, you need less irrigation. Um, finally, you have the products. If you prune your trees properly and you choose a valuable species, you are going to get money for that. If you put poplars down, um, you can harvest them after 10, 15 years and there's a ready market for them because most short-lived paper uh, wood products are made out of poplar. Um, if you're starting on in life, uh, put some walnuts down, some black walnuts. Uh, extremely valuable timber, but the rotation period is about 40 years. So you harvest it as you go uh, on, um, uh, on retirement. And uh, nuts, fruits, fodder for the animals, as I said, I could go on. Is there a substantive difference between agroecology and agroforestry, or, or do they exist in a continuum? They exist in a continuum. Ag agroecology deals with more than the mere biophysics of managing the land. Agroecology also deals with the economics, the sociology, and the human component of the farming system. Agroforestry is more focused on the biophysics. So while it is true to say that almost every agroecological system will include perennials and thus falls inside agroforestry, it's not true to say that every agroecological system is automatically an agroforestry system. For example, you can have grazing systems that do not include trees. They would be better with trees, but and that could be agroecological systems. But yes, uh, the, 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 the words are very similar to one. The, the words cover a lot of the same ground. Now, I think one of the reasons, apart from regulation in the past, that farmers have been hesitant to, to implement more trees on the field and maybe on the, on the border is, is twofold. The first is machinery. If you have trees in the middle of your field, it's 
difficult to get your tractor through it. And the other is if there's too much shade on the border, the where there's too much shade, the yield is not as good as where the wheat, for example, has full sunshine. Are we now at a point where you can take those worries away from farmers? Or yes. how should farmers yes. deal with the drawbacks of agroforestry, if you will? Well, the, the main drawback is a lack of knowledge. A, a farmer is trained as a farmer. A farmer is trained in the challenges of growing annual crops and of raising livestock. A farmer is not a forester. A farmer is not trained in the challenges of growing long-lived plants. So that knowledge is what's mostly missing. Um, farmers need that knowledge to apply an agroforestry system. The issue of mechanization, it's not an issue. Um, just plan your system properly. If you know that your system, uh, that, that, that your machinery is 10 meters large, then put your tree alleys at multiples of 10 meters in order to, to do that. Same for uh, uh, partial shade issues. Uh, here in the temperate zones of Europe, the automatic way, at least in, in plains, that you would root these trees is on a north-south line um, so that everything has a similar amount of shade as the sun moves from east to west. Um, the, you can calculate the amount of that shade that uh, will optimize your farming system. Uh, you're right to say that the shade will diminish the yield of wheat in a perfect year, in a year when you have no drought and in a year when you have no storms. But as farmers know very well, fewer and fewer years now are perfect years. And in years that have erratic weather, that have long dry spells or long wet spells, your trees are actually going to improve the yields of uh, your wheat, even though the total amount of land devoted to wheat is less, typically about 80% of what you had before. And experiments that have been done in Germany, in England and in France show that the uh, um, the um, uh, the productivity for the wheat that you're going to get on that 80% is at the same order as what you would get on 100% without the trees. And as soon as you start having nasty weather, it's much, much higher. The people who have agroforestry systems will typically harvest even in a drought. The people, even in a severe drought, I mean, the people who don't have agroforestry systems are seeing their crops wither on the stalk. And you also, I also want to point out that we need to remember that the game is not about yield. Yield is just a metric. The only metric that matters to a farmer is profit. At the end of the day, when you have sold your product and when you've paid for your inputs, are you making money or are you in hock to the bank even more than you were already? And there, agroforestry wins almost all the time, simply because it drives down costs so much. Yes, you have new costs, especially in the first years when the trees are young and they need to be protected. But later on, you need to prune them every three or four years. That's a cost, and that's about it. Apart from that, you have no costs associated with the trees, and the costs associated with the inputs are going right down. What should we do to increase the uptake of these practices? What is, what is needed for farmers to do more of this? This is where the extension services come in. There's really, uh, we've studied this um, around the world, actually, and there's really only two things that work. Uh, the first is very strong, very good advice. And the second is so-called farmer field schools. If you can go and visit a farmer that's doing it already, uh, and if he's the only guy in the village to drive around in a BMW, you are going to get a lot of interest, right? But the extension services is, is, is the most important side. And we see that difference, for example, in France, which under uh, a previous agriculture minister, Stéphane Le Foll, um, actually put in place some financing, uh, not only for a national agroforestry strategy, but also to encourage the training of agroforestry advisory agents who are fanning out across the landscapes and helping farmers plan and establish their agroforestry systems. 
that's what's needed. And um, we need to understand that this needs to be paid for by the public sector because a lot of advisory services are paid for by uh, seed companies and input companies, which makes sense because they make money every year from farmers. So they have a way of financing that advice. And in fact, that advice is part of their marketing strategy. But with agroforestry, it doesn't work that way. Uh, agroforestry is not that complicated. You know, if, if I spend a, a week with a farmer, and that's a lot, three days with a farmer, helping him plan his system after having done the basic interview to understand over what time scale he's looking to get his return from uh, then the rest is just planting he needs maybe to call me a few times a, a year in the early years when he's got a problem but after that that's it so um, it's, it's, it's cheap to establish from the perspective of the farmer but that also means there's no ready business model to pay for the advisory service hence we need the public sector to step up to the plate and do this so out of curiosity how much of the European farmed landscape would be counted as agroforestry right right now well, uh, figures that are coming from uh, official statistics, the Korean land cover statistics, show that 2.4 million square kilometers are covered with at least 10% tree cover in Europe. Now, that means hedges, it means windbreaks. We are not used to thinking of those as agroforestry systems, but they're, of course, part of it. It also means woodlots. Um, the, the best estimate that we have is that 10% of all of the trees in Europe are found outside of forests. That means farmland and urban areas and suburbs, but mostly farmland. Um, about 8% of that uh, total is probably on farmland. It's difficult to be more precise because the satellite imagery that we have at the moment has pretty large pixels. But as better satellite imagery becomes available, we'll be able to refine these figures. But the surprising thing here is there already is an awful lot of agroforestry out there, even if most people would not call it that or recognize it as being that. I wanted to take a discussion also a little bit outside Europe, certainly in, in the developing world. Is that where you believe that there are more opportunities for agroforestry or is there more agroforestry already present because of the way their landscapes are or were before they started being farmed? Well, thank you for that question, because my, I'm president of the European Agroforestry Federation, but my day job is as a science policy advisor for World Agroforestry, which is headquartered in Nairobi and in Indonesia and works across about 50 tropical and subtropical countries. So I'm familiar with the farming systems in these different environments. Um, no, it's, it, it would be unfair to say that agroforestry is more suited to, to the global south. Um, after all, agroforestry was the dominant farming system in Europe until the introduction of um, input-based agriculture after the First World War. Um, if you look at old postcards, uh, aerial photography from the late 19th century across Europe, there are trees and hedges absolutely everywhere. And lest we think that farming was unproductive in those years before um, inorganic inputs, just think of the fact that this tiny little continent, this appendix to the giant Eurasian landmass, provided the colonists, the armies, the uh, workers to dominate the globe. Um, this was done on the back of farming systems that included trees. That's what fed the cities. Um, so agroforestry, is common around the world. The reason why we today think it's more adapted to the South is simply that the South is poorer, so has been less of a market for uh, capital-intensive agriculture, for, uh, uh, for, for petrochemical agriculture, um, and so more farmers are still operating using these uh, time-honored techniques. And um, the best of those have levels of productivity of biomass production per, per unit area 
which put industrial agriculture in the shade and really in the shade. I'm not talking about 10 or 20 percent more productivity, but about three to 400 percent more productivity. Of course, that's a tropical humid. You know, you have 12 months of sun and 12 months of rain. Uh, so all you have to do is exploit nature's desire to grow anyway in order to farm well. So are those systems still being maintained or, or do you see that as agricultural systems sort of globalize and integrate that these systems are actually disappearing in favor of a more input-based agriculture? Um, it's not either or. They're being uh, combined. Commercial farmers in South Africa or in Zambia, for example, are beginning to integrate trees into their farming system simply because they need to reduce their cost and they need to take care of extreme weather. Uh, and that's happening around the world. In central China, in Henan province, you have millions of square kilometers of uh, wheat fields with poplars and mulberries and uh, paulonias and all sorts of other things growing there for exactly the same reason. And uh, we published a paper in Nature a few years ago uh, looking at this trend on a global basis. And we found that 42% of all agricultural land in the world has at least 10% tree cover already. And that this has been growing despite the... Uh, extension services being almost exclusively focused on input intensive agriculture. This has been growing by not by much, 2% over a decade, uh, but still it's been growing. It's not been decreasing. Um, this is also what we find in, in the rich world, not just in the poor world. We find that in the States, for example, you begin to have commercial companies that help farmers establish and exploit agroforestry systems. Farmers are becoming increasingly interested because at least in environments in which some farmers are doing it already, the neighbors can see that they are more resistant to drought and to storms, that they make more money. Uh, the difficulty is in the extremely rich farmlands like the Artois in France, for example, uh, where trees and hedges were extirpated 50 or 70 years ago and when nobody sees those systems in their landscapes. So nobody sees why they should put them in their landscape since it seems to work without them. Even though once you start doing it, you get higher productivity, you get lower costs. I wanted to ask, we've, we've talked quite extensively about the upsides of agroforestry and combating things like climate, climate change, but there's also certainly there's threats to trees themselves from climate change. We've seen a lot of insect pressures moving, droughts also affect trees themselves. Uh, is there a particular danger for these systems when it comes to climate change? Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if the rain stops, you know, the, the Sahara used to be green and full of trees. It's a desert now. Um, when the water goes, there's very little you can do. You can extend the uh, amount of time you can farm by managing land and water cleverly and by using trees. But eventually you're going to need to give up. So uh, let's not look at this kind of extremely broad scale climate change, which is going to hit us over time scales of decades to centuries. But let's look at shorter term things. Yes, trees are susceptible to climate change. And there's two ways in which they're susceptible. The first way is if you're using an exotic tree that's already going to be more fragile anyway, and then the climate changes. And that's what we're seeing happening with all the conifer plantations across uh, temperate Europe at the moment, especially in Central Europe. They are dying like everybody, hand over fist. Uh, and of course, that, that wood has no value anymore. It's a net loss to the foresters. Um, in agroforestry systems, you don't tend to use those kind of species. You tend to use species that are local species, so that are not exotic. And so they are more likely uh, to be resilient than the exotic species. On top of that, when you plan it, we use something we call climate analog analysis. So we're simply looking at a particular piece of land and we're going to uh, use the best models available to estimate what the climate's going to be looking like there in 10, 20, 30 years over the rotation period of those trees. 
um, so that we can eliminate the trees that are likely to find themselves in an uncomfortable situation. The challenge is, if the climate is changing too quickly, that the climate changes so quickly on a given piece of land that a tree does not have the ability to do the full life cycle between planting and harvesting that is required. But thankfully, we're not yet there. The climate is changing and it's changing quickly, but it's not yet changing quickly enough for that problem to arise. I wanted to turn briefly to uh, questions of policy as well. Um, the EU Green Deal, the Farm to Fork, the new common agricultural policy, they all mention agroforestry. They all talk about it in quite a positive sense. How confident are you that these sort of positive mentions will turn into real on-the-ground, on-farm changes to the landscape? Talk is cheap. It's extremely easy to put beautiful words about agroforestry in policy documents. But if you understand the reasons why farmers, despite the advantages, are not planting trees and you're funding ways of getting over these, uh, these problems, then it's just talk. What that means in practical terms is that things like the eco schemes have to bite the bullet and fund proper extension services for agroforestry and other forms of agroecology to rise. You cannot leave it to the private sector. The private sector is going to push technologies like precision farming, which are useful. Right? I'm not saying that these things don't, don't, don't have a use, they have a use. Um, but there are technology-based solutions, and more precisely, there are abiotic technology-based solutions. You buy some piece of mechanical, electromechanical kit, you add it to your tractor, and it does some wizardry for you. What we're talking about here is biotic technology. We're talking about using trees, using ecosystem services, exploiting and managing these ecosystem services to up the upsides and diminish the downsides. And to do that, farmers need support. They need consultants and somebody needs to provide them with those consultants. I looked at some of the SWOT analysis that the Agroforestry Federation has done, uh, that it does seem that when you get down into the nitty gritty, the national action plans don't seem to include much agroforestry in practice. It's certainly not the advisory services necessary. No, not at, not at all. Um, and, and, you know, and, 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 and it's, 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 it's frankly a bit frustrating. The European Agroforestry Federation is a federation of volunteers. We don't have a single staffer. We don't have anybody who can push that. We're trying to help our national members improve their ability to influence their national governments for agroforestry. Um, but of course, most of our members are farmers and academics. These are not naturally lobbyists or people who hang in the corridors of power. And um, because the eco schemes are a long menu of things, including some that are of interest to the private sector, it's extremely easy for everybody to get sidetracked and simply to support this and say, right, We've dealt with it. The private sector is going to take care of it. That's what we've been doing for the last 40 years. And there have been massive improvements in the way we do our farming over the last 40 years, thanks to the reliance on private, um, but not on the one thing that's beginning to worry us more and more, which is the negative externalities. To do that, you need to start working with ecosystems. You need to start working with trees. And that means you need consultancy. And that needs to be funded. And it needs to be funded locally. And that's something that I, I hope uh, that the FFA uh, can can recognize and, and, and can have conversations about because there's no way that, you know, that 200 academics and farmers who think that agroforestry is great can do that. I wanted to turn to a related uh, topic. We've recently seen the release of the new EU forestry strategy, which was somewhat controversial over its balance between nature protection and socioeconomic use. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on this new forestry strategy. Well, the forestry strategy comes on the back of the biodiversity strategy. And the biodiversity strategy famously suggested that Europe plant 3 billion additional trees. And the forestry strategy quite 
correctly identify as the place where these trees should be planted, which is farmland, rather than additional forestry plantations. We know the problems with forestry plantations and the climate change, so that would definitely not be a good idea. So that's definitely a step in the right direction. From our perspective, the fact that the uh, uh, staff working document that is on the back of the forestry strategy uh, mentions agroforestry over 40 times shows that the the technical experts who are preparing uh, the draft regulations, legislation, support measures, recommendations, communications, etc., on the back of the strategy are beginning to understand this and grapple in with it and are beginning to think about how they can encourage it. Uh, we see that happening in other directorates general as well, for example, the, uh, the, the land-based strategy being developed by DG Klima uh, has really identified two low-hanging fruits uh, to help land absorb carbon rather than emit carbon. The one is peatland rewetting and the other is agroforestry. So we find that at the, at the expert level, at the platonic level, the, the, the level of the experts, if you like, uh, the recognition that these, these, uh, these technologies are promising and need to be uh, encouraged is there, and you find that in the forestry strategy. Um, as Churchill famously said, politics is like a, uh, a sausage factory and uh, I, I will not be able to, uh, I, I do not want to forecast what the, fa the, the sausage factory is going to do with that strategy once the member states have had their input. I simply hope that at the level of the member states too there is this recognition that business as usual is just not going to hack it any longer. Um, and the beautiful news is that if you do this right, if you do it well, you actually improve the incomes of the people that we should be most worried about, which is the people who make their living from the landscape, the farmers, the ranchers and the foresters. Now, before we come to the final question, I want to return one more time to more the global level. You recently participated in an FFA workshop on regenerative agriculture and the UN Food Systems Summit. I was wondering what your expectations of this Food Systems Summit are and what do you hope to see out of, come out of it? The, the Food Systems Summit is looking at the entire food system from the moment you put your seed down into the ground to the moment you buy your, your Hershey bar in the shop. And uh, I'm not going to be focusing on the, on the retail side, on the transformation side of the food system. I'm going, what we focus on um, is on the production side and on the beginnings of the value chains. Um, what I hope is that the Food Systems Summit educates member states, UN member states, um, in substantially the same way that European Union member states need to be educated about what's needed to make agroforestry more productive and more widespread. And the member states of the UN need to learn that as well. I'm encouraged by a lot of the noises I hear, by a lot of the recommendations I see uh, coming out of the various action tracks of the Food System Summit, that this is becoming recognized. And interestingly enough, it's becoming recognized by absolutely everybody from industry all the way to activists. Uh, and that's great because it means we are actually all at least agreeing on what the problem is and on identifying which direction the solution should go to. So I'm optimistic that the Food System Summit will make recommendations that not only everybody can live with, that's a low bar, but that everybody can make money from and make a better planet out of. That's a much higher bar and I think we'll reach it. If you could give one single policy or practical advice to create a more sustainable food system, what would it be? Monocrops, no thanks. It's as simple as that. If buyers of farm products insist that they want to buy from polycultural systems, if producers recognize that they need to add trees in their system, then by definition, the idea of monocropping is going to take a backseat. And that's something that everybody can line up behind because polycultural systems, uh, 
and, and there's thousands of different kinds of them, um, by definition involve at least two different plants, typically a, uh, an annual plant and a perennial plant. And um, it's not complicated if you, if you said it that way. You don't have to start defining what is an agroecology or what is a permaculture or what is holistic grazing and all these words don't matter any longer. You only need to remember that monoculture is probably going to be less productive, less resilient, uh, less able to draw down carbon than any form of polyculture. So three words, monocrops, no thanks. Patrick Worms, president of the European Agroforestry Federation. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at ForumFag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Music